Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 27 this morning. Man, we ought to be singing truly loud as we can, hallelujah for the cross. Um, we, uh, we struggle, I mean, we struggle big to really believe in the salvation and the grace and the goodness and the sufficiency of the Lord God Almighty through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, this last week has been a difficult week. Many of us know that one of our own, a young man, um, was diagnosed with acute pancreatic and has literally been hanging on for his life all week long. A young wife with six little girls, and that's an intense thing. I mean, it's nothing but intense. And it's intense not simply because of the physical sufferings and the heartache that go with that, the unknowns in that, but, but intense because when those things happen, typically what we want to do is we want to fix it or we want to help or we want to make something happen, right? Um, which is not a bad heart, except that a lot of times that's an inappropriate focus. I mean, what these people need is Christ. It's just that simple. There's only one healer. There's only one comforter. There's only one that gives strength. There's only one that guides. There's, there's, there's only one that sustains. There's only one, and none of us qualify. And, and so it becomes intense because it actually calls us to real faith. You know, faith is cheap until it's, until it's costly. Faith is inconsequential until life and death are on the line. And quite honestly, faith is nothing if it doesn't believe that God is bigger than whatever trial we're facing and that if it doesn't believe in life after death, it's nothing. And so, you know, for us as a church, um, man, let me just encourage you to minister at a level that, that's not fleshly. To, whether you minister to Celadon and Anna and their children or you minister to somebody else, minister to a level that's not fleshly. Point people to Christ. Share the word of God with them that is strong and true and life-changing and let God use his word don't be convinced that you can do something to fix somebody's broken heart or to heal someone who's on death's door. Don't be convinced that you have something to offer that's better than Christ. There's nothing better. You know, it's, it's a, it is a helpless position to be in if we don't have Christ. But if we have Christ then we're not helpless to minister. We have something to offer, which is him, but you, you have to offer that through the word and you have to believe that yourself. There's so many people that they cry because they hurt with people and that's great. You should hurt and have compassion for people. You should. But they cry because they don't have hope. And then when they cry, they don't offer hope. If you're gonna cry with somebody, offer hope in your crying that they might have something to stand on and have life in. Does that make sense? It's too important. I mean, here we are. We've been digging through, as Isaiah mentioned, we've been going through some, some deep, heavy things 
but they're not designed to just simply be deep and heavy. They're designed to show us who God is. They're they're designed to show us what Christ has done for us. They're designed to show us the victory and the life that we have in Christ Jesus. And, And yes, it's deep. Yes, we gotta we gotta go through some hard things to find truth in God's word and to find truth in who God is. But let's just be honest, right? This world's hard. It's hard because people do get sick and people do die and people do have trials and they do have heartaches and there is betrayal. And I know most of us don't want that. Most of us want to be shallow. Most of us don't want to ever have to deal with hard things. We don't have to minister at deeper levels. We, we want the shallow, the easy stuff, the happy stuff. I mean, we want the, the things that don't cost anything, but that's not real. It's not true. And so in order to find where depth is in who Christ is and how deep and powerful God is, then yeah, we got to go through and look at what Christ went through for us and how people responded and how we can respond better and how we can walk by faith. And quite honestly, it's a shocking time in the American church where we go, we don't really want that depth. We want you to say something short, something cheap, something easy, something that won't cost us anything, something that won't challenge us anyway, something that won't cause us to grow. We want, we want the easy stuff. And it's true in a, in a general sense, in the, in the church in America today, we want the cheap stuff. But guess what happens when all we have is the cheap stuff and somebody like Celadon gets sick and we don't know how to help him and his wife or his children? That's right, we don't help them. There's nothing there for them because we've got nothing in us. Guys, it's, it's not okay to be shallow. It's not okay to have cheap faith. It's not okay. It's never been okay, and it's never going to be okay. And so as we continue to walk through the book of Matthew, now let me encourage you, get rid of your pride. There's nothing about you that anybody needs. They need Jesus. Humble yourself. Ask God to do a work in you that transforms you into the image of Christ, whereby the hope that you live with securely in Christ can then be shared with those who need that hope in time of trial. Don't be shallow. Ask God to do a deep work in us. All right? Matthew chapter 27, beginning of verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. 
But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you call us to a relationship with you that isn't about what we know. It's not about what we can do. It's not about how powerful or glorious we are. It's about you being our savior, being the lover of our soul. It's about you being sufficient for our needs, about you being the healer, about you being the one who gives eternal life. It's about you and the depth of your love and mercy and grace and patience and strength and righteousness and justice. It's about you. And Lord, I pray that you'd grow us, draw us into that relationship. For those that don't know you, who've never trusted Christ as Savior, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And for those of us that do know you, Lord God, don't let us be so shallow. Don't let us be so cheap. Don't let us be so selfish and fleshly. Teach us, Lord, who you are. You are everything we need We don't need anything else. Please, Lord God, teach us to rely on you. As we look into your word, Lord God, draw us to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we have talked about some difficult things. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. His disciples have fallen away. Peter has betrayed him or denied him three times. The crowds have arrested him. The Religious leaders have condemned him to death and they've brought him before Pilate. And things are at the, the climax, if you will, of Jesus fulfilling the will of God. I mean, this is it. He's there. And so he's before Pilate and, and it's, an, it's just an interesting even beginning to this, this trial that they've brought him to. Verse 11 says, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to, to him, it is as you say. And even that, that question, are you the king of the Jews, is very telling because that's not the charge that these guys actually condemned Jesus for when they were by themselves the night earlier. If you would go back and read when they were questioning Jesus, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, The religious leaders asked him if he was the Christ, the Son of God, and when he said, you have said it yourself, he further takes it. He goes, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? And they said, he deserves death, right? So the charge that they condemn him for is saying, I am 
the Son of God. I am the Messiah. He's speaking truth. He's not lying to them, but because they don't believe him, but because they're arrogant, because they're rebellious, because they're hard-hearted, they say, well, he's blasphemed. We don't need any more witnesses. What do you say about him? And all the group of them say he deserves death. So that's the charge that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they condemn him for. But when Pilate gets the charge, it's obvious the charge is he claims to be the king of the Jews. And it's, it's not too complex to see. I mean, quite honestly, a Roman governor couldn't care less about whether a guy claims to be the Messiah or not. He doesn't even want to figure that out. He sees that as a religious issue, and he's not going to deal with that at such a level that he's going to condemn a man to death. So these guys, in their wickedness and their evil and their rebellion, have to find a way that they feel like can manipulate Pilate to sentence Jesus to the cross And the way they come up with is, let's say he claims to be a different king. Because Caesar won't put up with that. Right? You can claim to be a Messiah. Caesar doesn't necessarily care. You claim to be a king. Caesar's going to put you down. Right? So these guys are still manipulating to literally kill Jesus. It's all they care about. So all these religious leaders of the Jews care about is killing Jesus. And so Pilate says to Jesus... Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say. Very similar to what he said to the high priest. You have said it yourself. Basically what he's saying is, you have come up with the truth. Now he said to the high priest, let me explain it further. Right here, Jesus doesn't need to explain it further. It's the truth. I am the king of the Jews. Now if Pilate had said to him, are you the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of glory? Jesus could have easily have said too, Yet as it is as you say, he is the king, right? He's not willing to deny it. And so then it says, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. I just, I just kind of love, I just kind of love to read the Bible And I don't just like to read it like a book. It just doesn't, it's not that to me. I don't think it's that to you if you spent time in the Bible. I mean, it's it's so alive to me. I mean, here's Jesus. I want to sit there like I'm with him, right? Like I can see him, like I can hear him. And and he's already been asked, are the king of the Jews? He's already said yes. But but these guys, you know, their accusers. They have no integrity. They, they couldn't care less about Jesus. They don't care about Pilate. They don't care about the nation of Israel. Quite honestly, they don't even care about themselves. All they care about is getting their way. All they care about is making these accusations that's going to come out with Jesus dead. That's what they want. And so they're piling on these accusations. And it doesn't really tell us what. It doesn't really matter what they were because none of them were true. Not a single solitary one of them was true. They were all made up, all for the purpose of killing Jesus. And don't you love that twice it tells us that Jesus said nothing. Verse 12, he did not answer. Then again, Pilate says to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. And I love that. Because quite honestly, Jesus, he didn't need to defend himself. None of it was true. 
by faith and not by the flesh. Man, I, I wish my son was here because he could verify this. Talked about this a little bit before, but I, I grew up with a son that loves to debate. He loves to debate. I don't know why. I don't know why. I'd blame his mom, but she never debates. So <laughs> I couldn't even do it with a straight face. He's just at a different level. And so when he was a teenager, I don't know when it started, 12, 13, but by the time he was 16, 17, it was full bore. And he just wanted to debate. He didn't care whether he was right or not. If you picked a side, he'd debate the other side. And so I, I can't tell you how many times I said to my son, Jacob, son, stop talking to me. <laughs> but dad, I'm like, no, you're wrong. I'm right. Stop talking. And he'd say to me, you can't do it that way. You've got to make your point. I said, no, truth is truth. I don't need to defend it. Move on. And he would be so frustrated with that. I'm, I'm glad he grew out of that. I think it was like 34. <laughs> He's 35. He, I think he got better some point in time in there. He actually said to me one time, Dad, I think I understand. I said, understand what, son? I think I understand that you were right. That truth is truth and you don't have to defend it. I'm like, if you'd have just listened when you were 12. But anyway, I wish he was here. He could confirm that. He would have a good chuckle out of that. But isn't it true of us that instead of standing on truth, we, we think somehow we have to defend ourselves all the time rather than trusting in Jesus? Isn't it true? We don't have to. Jesus wasn't about it. He didn't need to be. He knew the Father's will. He knew part of the Father's will was his death on that cross. And he wasn't saying a thing. Man, when we draw near to God and we know who he is and we know how secure we are in him, we don't, we don't have to wrestle or speak or defend. He is all that we need. He is all that we need. Well, he doesn't speak to the place where the governor was quite amazed. And that's, pretty, that's a pretty significant little phrase because literally what we find in this passage is that we find that Pilate right here and from this point forward really believes that Jesus is innocent. He believes that Jesus is innocent. That's, that's fairly significant because it's an interesting thing that happens in this passage of Scripture. But let's go a little further so we can see that. In verse 15, it says, Now at the, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for, people, for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy... They had handed him over. And so here's this kind of change of focus. I mean, Pilate is still there with the people, but he's not questioning Jesus anymore. He's done questioning Jesus. I, I believe he's already made his mind up about who Jesus is and what he needs to do with Jesus. So he turns his focus to try to find a way to acquit Jesus. And so 
he says, right, the governor's accustomed to releasing to the people a prisoner. He's thinking this to himself. This is, this is Matthew narrating what's going on through Pilate's mind. He knows that there's a custom for him to release one prisoner to the people as a way probably as of establishing some rapport with him and the people because he was a Roman governor and they hated him and he hated them. Anyway, so, you know, some sort of little peace offering. And at the time he was holding a notorious prisoner, which could be translated a, a pretty vile prisoner. This guy was no joke. Barabbas was not. He was an insurrectionist. I'll read that later. He was among the murderers. He was a pretty wicked man. And so Pilate thinks to himself, hey, I've got Barabbas. I've got Jesus. They couldn't be more opposite from one another. Wicked, never done anything wrong. So Pilate says to them, hey, which guy do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? Now that's an interesting thing at that point in time because Pilate apparently knew that people called Jesus or that Jesus called himself the Christ, meaning Messiah, meaning Savior. So he puts into this little phrase here, do you want me to release for you this notorious, nefarious, criminal, murderer, insurrectionist, or do you want me to release to you Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior? It's an interesting proposition because it should be an easy answer. I mean, for most of us, you would think we would have that answer fairly quickly. And so the Bible says here, though, that Pilate knew because that they had handed him over because of envy in other words again we see Pilate doing his best to find a way to release Jesus because he knows he's innocent because he knows that there's no reason to convict him and he certainly knows that there's no reason for Jesus to go to the cross the worst kind of death sentence for the worst kind of criminals was what the cross was. Well, then we have another little interlude in here that Matthew adds in verse 19. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So now we get this really clear picture that Pilate believes Jesus is innocent, but now we have this next picture that his wife now knows he's innocent. His wife says to him, now in the middle of a trial, he's sitting on the judgment seat, right? He's sitting on the seat that says, court's in order, I'm going to make a decision here. And while he's sitting on his judgment seat as the judge, she sends him a message. And she says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I had a dream about him last night and I dreamt about what I would have to suffer because of him. And so what she's saying to him is, do not convict this man. Do not condemn this man. This is a righteous man. She knows because God has made her know. She doesn't know Jesus. She doesn't care about Jesus. She's a Gentile. She's a Roman. They wouldn't have much to do with the Jews for sure. And the Jews didn't have much to do with them. She doesn't know him, but God has made it known to her, which I find really interesting. 
Because quite honestly, you know, some people say, well, Jesus was just a man like the rest of us, therefore he must have sinned like the rest of us. That's not true, right? If that's true, he could never have been our Savior, would not have been qualified for our, to be our Savior. But now the Bible is reiterating that, if you will, strengthening that position through Pilate realizing he's innocent. And now his wife, through a dream from God, realizes he is innocent. And she says, don't have anything to do with him, because if you do, I, probably along with you, am going to suffer greatly, right? It's just a reminder that what we do with Jesus matters. So, okay, we have Pilate now saying he's innocent. We have Pilate's wife knowing he's innocent. But the scene carries on in verse 20, and it gets pretty ugly, and it gets pretty ugly pretty quickly, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Now, again, that's a pretty pretty shocking little thing, and we kind of wonder to ourselves, why would they so easily choose Barabbas even if the chief priests and the elders and all the leaders of Israel asked them to? I mean, just a week ago, crowds were cheering Jesus on and worshiping him as he came into Jerusalem saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Come, come save us, come save us, right? They were worshiping him and and you would think that, man, they would want the Messiah. You would think that this man who had healed and raised the dead and and taught with authority would be the one that they would quickly want, but, but man, we are, we are a harsh lot without Christ. I mean, we are a people that are rebellious by nature. And I'm not just talking about rebellious toward one another. I'm talking about rebelling toward God. We don't want God in our life. We don't want to submit to God We don't want to recognize that there's a Lord. We don't want to have to be obedient. We've already talked about the epitome of evil as as the Sanhedrin gathered in the dark of the night and accused Jesus and for the purpose of of seeing him killed. I mean, we've seen it, but we we continue to see it. And, And one of the ways that we see it is just in this common, ridiculous mantra that we hear over and over and over again. I mean, Barabbas... Like I said, it was an insurrectionist. Mark 15, Mark 15, 7 says, the man named Barabbas has, had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. In order to translate that, you have to understand that they were rising up against the Roman oppressors. They were rising up against what they considered to be an, a corrupt government. They were rising up against those that, who, that suppressed their freedoms. They were rising up so they could have their own ways in this world and they could accomplish their own things in this world and they could live the way they wanted to live in this world because it was all about this world to them. It was all about the flesh to them. It was all about their particular preferences to them. And so these insurrectionists seemed good to those who didn't care about God seemed good to those who aren't worried about the kingdom of heaven, 
seemed good to those who all they cared about was themselves and their personal freedoms and their political opinions. The insurrectionists seemed good. Sure, I'm glad we don't have anybody like that in our church today. That's convinced with every ounce of their being that the right political party or the right president sits on the, in the White House, that everything will be good. Sure, glad we don't have any of that going on today. Because all that is is about your flesh. All that is many times is so much about your flesh rather than about God's kingdom. I'm telling you, I could care less what political party reigns. I could care less who sits on the, the, in the seat of the White House. I care more about what God wants to accomplish in his world and bring his kingdom to pass, even if that's judgment. These guys... They were willing to kill the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, so that they could have an insurrectionist who might throw off the physical chains just so they could have what they wanted in the flesh. That's why it was so easy for the, for the chief priests and the elders to stir up the crowd and say, ask for Barabbas. That's what the chief priests wanted so they could keep their positions. That's what the people wanted so they could be more comfortable in the flesh. They didn't want Christ. They had to get rid of him so they could have what they wanted. Anybody like that today? Anybody sitting here like that today? You could care less about Christ. All you care about is yourself There's no way you're going to humble yourself. There's no way you're going to follow Christ. There's no way you're going to trust Christ. All you care is about yourself. And and man, if God will come along and help you do what you want to do, that's fine. If not, get, get lost. Anybody here today? Anybody listening? So they, they stir up the crowd, ask for Barabbas, put Jesus to death. But the governor says to them, so he says to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they say, Barabbas, Barabbas. And Pilate says to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? What should I do with this man that I know is innocent? What should I do with this man that I know, you know, claims to be the Savior? What should I do with him? And they go, crucify him. Men and women have been screaming, crucify Christ and crucify God since Adam and Eve screamed it in the garden when they said, we can be our own God if we just do this. If we get rid of Jesus, we can be our own God. We can be free and live our own way. Let's get rid of him. And Pilate, 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 this is not a good man. Yes, I've said he knows he's innocent, but Pilate was never a good man. And this evil, wicked man says, why What evil has he done? Isn't that a great question? What is it about Jesus Christ 
or God the Father that would cause any of us to say, no, Lord, I don't want you. I don't need you. I can't stand you. What is it about the living God who created us, who loves us, who gave his son to die for us? What is it about him? What evil has he done that we wouldn't want him to be the Lord and Savior of our life? (coughs) And the answer is he's done nothing to deserve our rejection. He's done nothing to deserve our rebellion. He's done nothing. But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then... And then the unthinkable happens. I mean, honestly. If you're sitting there and you're listening to Pilate, if you were there by the bema, by the judgment seat, you'd have been thinking, Pilate knows he's innocent. These people don't know he's innocent, but Pilate does. Pilate has the authority. His authority let him go. But then the unthinkable happens. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. (laughs) I mean, it's almost, it's almost unimaginable. How could you look at a man that you know is innocent? How could you look at a man that you know has done nothing evil ever, sinless, and then say, ah, it's politically expedient for me to step out of this situation If I declare him innocent, a riot's going to start. Caesar's going to hear about it. Caesar doesn't put up with riots out in the people, and I could lose my position as governor. It's expedient for me to step out of this thing because if I really make a judgment, I'm going to have the political kickback or I'm going to be guilty of condemning an innocent man. So he thinks that he can stand up and take some water in front of the people and wash his hands and make a simple statement that I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself and all things would be fine as if he can just wash away his accountability for what he's gonna do with Jesus. And there's so many people in the world that are like that today. They think, you know what, I... I won't make a decision about Jesus. I won't make a choice about Jesus. I won't take a stance about Jesus. I'll do nothing for Jesus. I'm not really guilty because I'm not really sinful. So I'll just say I'm not sinful. I'm not accountable. And I can wash Jesus' blood and the guilt and the accountability off my hands and all will be well. Except nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. What you do with Jesus whether you believe in him or you reject him, is on you. It's on you. There's no way to get away from it. John three sixteen through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. If we stop there, hallelujah. But verse 18 gets more specific. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, eternal life hinders on whether you believe in Jesus or whether you don't believe in Jesus. Whether you trust him as your savior or whether you reject him as your savior, that's what eternal life hinders on. There is no, there is no other way. So washing your hands and saying I'm not guilty doesn't make you less guilty. Washing your hands and saying you guys deal with Jesus doesn't make you less accountable. We are all accountable. Matter of fact, we're all accountable right now, this very minute. Those of us who have believed, hallelujah, we've been forgiven and we have life. Those of us who have not believed in Jesus Christ have been judged already. He's the judge. He's the savior. He's the only one. And so Pilate, this man that knows he's innocent, he knows his wife has said to him through a dream from God, He is innocent. Don't condemn this man. Now cowers in selfishness and pride and rebellion and wickedness. He washes his hands as if he could be absolved from this accountability. But he's not. And if that wasn't bad enough, he says, see to that yourselves. And the people say, His blood be on us and on our children. And they think that they have the moral capability or authority to handle the accountability of Christ's death. And they don't. They don't. And quite honestly, no one on earth would want the responsibility for killing the Lord Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, is we all, we all, we all are accountable for his death. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive alive in the spirit. Who did Jesus die for? All. That means we're all accountable. It was our sins he had to die for. My sin he had to die for. Your sin he had to die for. I know we don't like to hear that, but it's true. The amazing thing about it is, is he did it willingly he did it because he loves us the passage finishes by saying then he released Barabbas for them but after having Jesus scourged he handed him over to be crucified and we look at this and we realize without a doubt right that the religious leaders man it was it was there responsibility they brought Christ to Pilate they rejected Jesus 
Part of this accountability is theirs. Part of this accountability is Pilate's. You can't take that away from him. He knew he was innocent. There's no doubt about it. But he was so wicked and so evil, so rebellious, that he condemned him anyway and tried to somehow skirt the issue. But here's the, here's the bigger picture. This was God's moving. This was God's will. I memorized some verses as Max and I were getting ready to go down to see Celadon and Anna this week. And they're pretty applicable for this. They're in Galatians chapter 1. Just a greeting. Just a simple little greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Those verses are a little... They're powerful to me. They were powerful to me in thinking about Celadon and Anna, but they're powerful to me beyond that. Grace and peace is what God desires for us. God the Father and God the Son. God the Son desires grace and peace for us so much that he gave his life for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age. But don't miss the next part. According to the will of our God and Father. It wasn't just evil men that brought Christ to the cross. The Father brought him. He sent him. Jesus came willingly because it was the only way. It was the only way to save you and me. The only way. And so we see all this evil from the men and the women involved in this situation. But we also see grace and peace and love and life in the depth of this wickedness. Christ coming. Christ being scourged. Christ being crucified for the salvation of the world. Is it shallow? No. Is it gut-wrenching? I hope so. How can we hear this and not go, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. And how can we not in that next breath go, but thank you, thank you for the love and the grace and the sacrifice to save me a sinner? How can we respond any other way? Listen, do you want to have life? Do you want hope when the deepest trials come your way, when your body's riddled with cancer, or you get the diagnosis that you may not live? Do you want life when the finances fail, when you've got nothing to stand on, Do you want life today and forevermore? If you want life, it comes through Jesus Christ, the greatest price, the highest price 
the most miraculous price that anyone could ever give for us has been paid. But we've got to believe in Jesus. Now we're going we're gonna to take the Lord's Supper so we can remember. Let's remember. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, pray now. Just pray. Lord Jesus, save me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for not just your word, but for what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that you went through suffering that we could never imagine to save us from sins, Lord God, that we, we just don't deserve. We don't deserve that salvation. We are sinful people and arrogant people. We are so full of pride and rebellion. We so much, Lord God, want ourselves and our ways and our, and our world that oftentimes, Lord God, we just push you aside and do our best to kill you again and again that you won't have any influence in our life when all you want for us is to give us life. Lord Jesus, help us turn to you today. For the lost, I pray that they be saved today. For those of us that know you, I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that we draw close to you today. And how I pray that as we take this Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, you'd be worshiped and we'd remember how good you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.